whatever it is God lays out for us in eternity to do, you will do it, and in doing it, you will find perfect, complete joy and satisfaction. And you'll do it all to the glory of God. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will conclude his current series with part four of The Eternal State, I Saw a New Heaven and a New Earth. Last time, Tom began to examine and compare the similarities and differences of the current world and the promised coming future world found in the Bible. And today, Tom will continue those observations, looking at not only what the future earth will be like, but who will be there and what they will be like. And as you'll learn today, this glorious future is available for all who repent and believe in Christ Jesus. And this hope is the only one worth banking your entire life on. Why? Well, let's join our teacher to find out here on The Word Unleashed. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, go on to tell us that there'll be no needs there. No needs. Why? Well, first of all, notice that God's throne and the throne of the Lamb is there. Verse 22, there's the throne of God and of the Lamb. Why is that significant? What does the throne represent? Obviously rule, but what else does it represent for us? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. You don't usually find those words together, do you? The throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's no need because the throne of God is just down the street. We're also told that a crystal clear river flows from beneath the throne of God down the middle of the city's main street and apparently continues a cascading course of waterfalls and streams through the rest of the city. Notice what he writes. John writes in chapter 22, verse 1, He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. So here is this magnificent river. Rivers don't mean as much to us here in Texas as they mean to people in barren places. For years, when I lived in California, we would take people who came to visit us and show them the area, and we would drive over these huge bridges, a bridge maybe of, of a quarter of a mile. And underneath the bridge would be only dry sand, and we would go on and on about how beautiful the rivers are here in California. Enjoy. You may want to get your camera, take a picture of the river. It was a ditch, okay? There was no water. There was only water there when it rained, and only for a few hours. People who live in barren places like that, and Palestine has some similarities to Southern California, a river is everything because it provides the most important ingredient to human life the most important ingredient to animal life, the most important ingredient to plant life, a river. In fact, cities in the ancient world were built adjacent to rivers. But this city has a river that flows from its center 
through its center, just as in the original Garden of Eden. This is truly paradise regained. Verse 2 says, On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Now, there is a lot of debate, and I'm not going to take you through it, about how many trees are intended here. And there, there are exegetical reasons for that in the Greek text that I'm not going to drag you through. Some say there's one tree, some say there's two trees, some say there are three trees, others say there's an entire tree-lined boulevard. Look, it doesn't really matter. The point is that there are trees, and there is specifically a kind of tree called the tree of life, the mysterious tree of life. It's a tree symbolic of eternal life where eating the fruit allows us to enjoy the reality of life both that lasts forever and life of a different quality. Life from above, as the Apostle John tells us in his Gospel. It also speaks, by the way, of eternal blessing. Because notice that the tree bears twelve kinds of fruit, one for each month. It's a fruit of the month tree. A couple of years ago, someone graciously gave our family one of those um, fruit of the month gifts where each month you sort of anticipate this fruit, this fresh, wonderful fruit. And our family was eagerly anticipating each month when we received the next installment on that gift. And this tree, the tree of life, is just like that. Incredible variety. By the way, we won't eat there to have nourishment. Christ didn't need nourishment in His glorified body, but He could eat. We will eat there apparently and drink for sheer enjoyment. Notice that even the leaves of the tree, verse 2, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Every part of these trees will enhance our lives there and make our lives more rich and satisfying. Incredible. What awaits us there? No needs Chapter 22, verse 3 says there'll be no curse. There will no longer be any curse. Nothing attached to the curse of sin. Nothing reminiscent of what happened in the Garden of Eden. None of the fruit of that fateful decision will be there in the eternal state. It'll all be erased from heaven's records and certainly from the reality of the new heaven and the new earth. Verses 4 and 5 tells us there will be no separation. I love this. It says, the end of verse 3, it says, The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. You know what the part of that that thrills me most is? It isn't the reigning. It's the forever and ever. Seeing the face of God forever and ever. No separation from God. There's one other thing that won't be in heaven. John says that there are certain people who won't be there. Go back to chapter 21, verse 8. But for the cowardly... By the way, if you wonder why that's there, it has reference to those who refuse to stand for Christ in the midst of persecution and other things. But for the cowardly 
and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. He's just told us who will inherit heaven in verse 7. And in verse 8, he tells us who won't. Notice verse 27 of the same chapter. I read it to you a few minutes ago. Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying will ever come into this place. Chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside. That doesn't mean just outside the walls. It means outside of this reality. In hell forever are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. These verses are terrifying in one sense, but for me, they bring back wonderful memories because it was hearing these verses read and explained when I was a senior in high school that God used to bring me to faith in Christ. A man was preaching a message on heaven, much as I'm sharing with you tonight, and the reality of what that place will be like. And he read these verses and really didn't comment on them much at all, as I have not tonight because of time. But as I read those verses along with him, I realized on that February night that I was in this list on several occasions, that I would not be there. And the Lord used that to open my eyes and to bring me to faith. Now, that's a sort of jet tour, if you will, of the new heaven and the new earth. But there are a couple of questions that most people have. At least I had them, and I'm assuming others have them as well, that I think need to be answered. What will we be like? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that, and I'm not going to take you through 1 Corinthians 15. I'm just going to comment on it. If you want models for contemplating what you will be like, think about Adam before the fall, but without the possibility of sinning. Think about Christ during his earthly life, but with a glorified body. Or best of all, think about Christ during the 40 days after his resurrection, but before his ascension. That's when he was thoroughly human, but in a glorified body, just as you and I will be. We will be perfectly holy in our character like Christ is. All of the divine attributes or qualities that humans can share, the communicable attributes as they're called, will be ours. But we will remain completely human. Unlike the teaching of Mormonism, we will never be gods. Most Christians understand what they'll be like spiritually. They'll be like Christ in character. But what they're really curious about is what will our new bodies be like? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us, he says they will be imperishable. That is, they will never wear out. They will never grow old. Thank God. They will be in glory. That is, there will be a beauty, an inherent beauty and attractiveness about them. I also thank God. In power. That is, they will be characterized by full human strength. And we're told that it will be a spiritual body. Now, immediately when you read that expression, it sounds like a contradiction. Don't get the idea that Paul means some kind of ghost that appears to have a body. 
Body, whenever it's used of the human form in Scripture, never means non-physical. Instead, it means that we will have a glorified, real, physical body like that of Jesus Christ's glorified body. It will have the same qualities to it that his body had, but it will be us and look like us. We're told that the spiritual body, again, using Christ as the illustration, his glorified body is the sort of testing ground for what we will be like. Our new bodies, our glorified bodies, will be recognizable but still different. And you can read that in John 20, verses 20 and 27. We will be able to eat but have no hunger. We will be able to move through matter but still be able to be touched. We will have continuity with our old bodies. There will be similarities and yet they will be entirely new. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 37 and 38 says, That which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, talking about when you put a body in the ground when it's died, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. In other words, you put a seed in the ground, and the plant that comes from it bears resemblance, but it's different. The same thing is true for us. The relationship between our current bodies and our new bodies is similar to that between a seed and the plant from which that grows from it. That's what we'll be like. Key question for me is, what will we do? What will we do? Well, the first thing we'll do is worship. The Bible consistently promises that one day we will see the face of God. Job anticipated this in Job 19, verses 25 to 27. He says, I will see God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus said, the pure in heart will see God. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we shall know face to face. 1 John 3, 2, we will see Him just as He is. Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The implication is with holiness, we will see the Lord. Revelation 22.4, we will see the face of the Lamb. Look at Revelation 22, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face. What does this mean? Well, you understand that God is spirit. The essence of God is immaterial. In God's essential being, God has none of the properties that belong to matter. God is spirit. That means God is not material. So all of these references must mean one of two things. Either we will see the first, or excuse me, we will see the second person of the Trinity, the God-man who has a human body that can be seen, or it means that God the Father will, just as He did on occasion in the Old Testament, choose to reveal Himself in some physical manifestation, very likely blazing glorious light. What they don't mean is that God has some material, permanent form, except for the human body of Jesus Christ. You know what all this is talking about? We will enjoy what theologians through the history of the church have called the beatific vision. We will gaze on God. And it will be a forever moving, enrapturing, compelling, life-changing vision. And as a result, we will worship Him. Wonderful worship. We will also serve Him. Revelation 22, 
verse 3 says, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. John MacArthur writes on this passage, They will spend all eternity carrying out the infinite variety of tasks that the limitless mind of God can conceive. Don't think you're going to get bored in heaven. You won't. You'll worship and you will serve. Remarkably, according to Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 40, our Lord will also serve us. But we will serve. Thirdly, we will reign. Revelation 22.5 says there will no longer be any night. They will have no need of the light of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. This is the fulfillment of the promise made back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, where Jesus Himself said to the Christians there of the first century in those churches in Asia Minor, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. The question is, reign over whom or what? We can't be sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. I believe certainly we will reign over the new creation just as Adam was installed as the vice regent over this earth and its creatures. There was work to do in the Garden of Eden before the fall and there will be work to do in eternity. Will we reign over other believers? It's possible. There may very well be a hierarchy in eternity just as there was in Eden before the fall. Eve submitting to Adam's leadership. There is that same sort of hierarchy among the angels in heaven. Equality of standing before God does not imply that there will be no structure or order in the future world. Every human institution God has ever established had order and structure, and it may be very much the same in eternity. The same kind of order and structure exists even within the Trinity, and there there is absolute equality. So it's very possible that there will be structure a hierarchical structure in eternity. We will reign. And we will also live perfectly human lives. While we don't have many descriptions of what life then will be like, there are a few indications. And what we find is that life then will include many of the features similar to life here, only perfect, without sin. For example, there's eating and drinking. Several times our Lord commented on this. It's possible that some of these references refer to the millennial kingdom. It's likely that others refer to eternity. Luke 22:18. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. The implication being, then I will, Jesus says. Revelation 19:9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, a great banquet for the celebration of God's redeemed church. Revelation 22.1, there's a river. And verse 2, there's fruit and trees. Music will also play a significant part in eternity. We see that in Revelation in the current heaven. And there's no reason to believe that that will end. Learning will play a part in the future. You say, learning, won't we know perfectly? No, because God is infinite. We can never learn all that is to be known of Him. So we will spend eternity completing the process of learning about Him that began in this life. Colossians 1.10 says that we are to increase in the knowledge of God. That's true in this world, and it will be true in the next as well. We will also engage in other normal human activities, probably 
They will be a part of eternity. We can't be dogmatic. Here's what a couple of authors have written. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology writes, Perhaps people will work at the whole range of investigation and development of the creation by technological, creative, and inventive means, thus exhibiting the full extent of their excellent creation in the image of God. A.A. Hodge, great Princeton theologian, writes, Heaven as the eternal home of the divine man and of all the redeemed members of the human race, must necessarily be thoroughly human in its structure, conditions, and activities. Its joys and its occupations must all be rational, moral, emotional, voluntary, and active. There must be the exercise of all faculties, the gratification of all tastes, the development of all talent capacities, the realization of all ideals. The reason, the intellectual curiosity, the imagination, the aesthetic instincts, the holy affections, the social affinities, the inexhaustible resources of strength and power native to the human soul must all find in heaven exercise and satisfaction. Let me summarize that for you. You will never be bored in heaven. And whatever you do, Whatever it is God lays out for us in eternity to do, you will do it, and in doing it, you will find perfect, complete joy and satisfaction. And you'll do it all to the glory of God. What an amazing future awaits us. John MacArthur writes, The eternal capital city of heaven, the new Jerusalem, will be a place of indescribable, unimaginable beauty. From the center of it, the brilliant glory of God will shine forth through the gold and precious stones to illuminate the new heaven and the new earth. But the most glorious reality of all will be that sinful rebels will be made righteous, enjoy intimate fellowship with God and the Lamb, serve them, and reign with them forever in sheer joy and incessant praise. C.S. Lewis ends the stories of Narnia with these words from the final book entitled The Last Battle. Aslan, the lion who represents Christ, speaks to the young heroes who have been killed along with their family and who now find themselves in the shadowlands. And this is what Aslan says to them. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And then Lewis writes, The things that begin to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what awaits us in God's eternity. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series titled The Eternal State, I Saw a New Heaven and a New Earth. Join us next time, friend, for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. 
Well, Tom, before we end our time today, how about sharing a closing thought with us? Well, it's truly exciting to think about our future. For those of us in Christ, we are going to live on that new earth, and we're going to live with our Lord. And in that amazing capital of the new universe, the new Jerusalem. But I think, as you heard me share, it's so important for us to make sure that we're going to be there. It was this very passage that the Lord used to bring me to faith many years ago now. And so I just encourage you, dear friend, to really take honest stock. What is the nature of my relationship to Jesus Christ? Do I really know him? Am I going to be there forever? And if not, I plead with you today to cry out to him in faith and repentance, and he will never turn you away. Thanks, Tom. And friend, we want to let you know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.